Hello, everybody. I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome to 15-Minute Film Fanatics. The premise of the show, if you don't know already, is that Mike and I have been talking about stuff our whole lives, talking about movies, but now we watch movies separately and talk about them for the first time on the podcast. So every conversation we have is new. We've, we've seen these movies, but we've never talked about them before. This week, we're doing a request. We're honoring another request by a listener. This is for Travis G. Travis G sent us a whole list of movies, and in them was a movie that I can't believe, Mike, we have never discussed up until now. I love this movie. I've seen it a hundred times, but I can't believe that we've never talked about it. And that movie is Seven Samurai, the 1954 masterpiece by Akira Kurosawa. I mean, we're coming off the life and death of Colonel Blimp, which was an epic gut punch. And, and then we get another one. So Travis, thank you so much. We hope you love this conversation. And uh, also we would encourage you to go to Travis G's YouTube channel. He has a lot of really cool videos where he does like remixes of things. Like he has a great bit where um, he has like all these explosions from movies set to the Can Can music. And we, t- we, t- we retweeted it at one spot. So you could follow us on Twitter at 15min film and you'll find Travis on there. So Mike, we both watch this. When you start to, when you think about watching The Seven Samurai, you know, it's a three and a half hour movie and you got to be ready for it. You got to be in for it. Now, Mike, quick aside, trivia question. What movie that we've done on this podcast in our first six seasons is that if this is the longest movie we've done, what's the next longest movie we've done? Godfather 2. Very good. We have a winner. Okay. So Godfather 2 is three hours and 22 minutes and Samurai is three hours and 27 minutes. Now I bring that up because what I want to talk about in part one, and I want to get your thoughts on this is that um, obviously it never feels long. It's so perfect. It, it goes by so quickly. Godfather two actually feels longer. And I don't mean that as an insult, but it feels longer when you're, when you're done with it. It made me think about Othello. So in Othello, I think it was Frank Kermode that put up the, the literary critic that had this theory, but you know, one thing people will say about Othello is, you know, so much happens in like a day and a half. How could that be? And even people that don't care about the Aristotelian unities or things, they say, how can that be? And I don't know if you ever heard this, like Frank Kermode had this idea, I think it was him, called Fast Time. Do you ever hear this? Yes. It's the intensity of the language and the experience, like kind of like accelerates time. And that seems like it's crazy, but of course it happens in real life, right? Because, you know, you could know somebody since you're five years old and then you fall in love and your emotions with that person make you feel like you've known that person longer. Same thing with like when you have children and stuff. And I think something like that happens when you watch The Seven Samurai. I think time disappears. It doesn't feel like a three and a half hour movie. And, and I just want to get your take on that, like, uh, like on that whole experience of like pressing play and going on this journey. I think that the difference between those two movies, besides the fact that they're, they're, they're quite close in runtime, but they feel so different, uh, has to do with their structure. So um, let's play a quick game. Describe to me the plot of Godfather Part 2. Well, there's two plots. Right. We'll, we'll stop you. There. Right. So we jump, we jump in space and time and you got to know who knew what, when, and there's a ton of information. The beauty of the seven samurai is that the shape of the story is, is so simple. Somebody said, Oh, I, you watch the seven samurai. What's that about? You'd say there's a village that's terrorized by bandits. So they hire a bunch of guys that are not affiliated with a local Lord to come and protect them. And there's some tension between those guys and the farmers. And then ultimately the bandits attack and people are like, okay, I'd watch that. (laughs) And uh, I think from an expositional standpoint, when you get into the movie, if you watch, if you watch a bad movie or at best a mediocre movie, you can always tell when the exposition is happening. The beauty of this movie is that the exposition happens when the farmers are terrified 
both when the bandits are leaving and then when they're arguing amongst themselves when the bandits have just left. So you get all the information that you need up front about exactly where we are and what's happening. I would say that the, your, your entry time into the world of Seven Samurai is about three minutes. And then you dwell in the same place and time for about three and a half hours. And so I think that that lack of transition from place to place, time to time, period to period is why this movie feels so short and so intense, despite its massive runtime and the fact that it has a pee break in it. <laughs> a built-in one. And, which know, is nice of them. Yeah. It's funny what you said about, about after about three minutes, you're in that village, like you're in this world. It reminded me of what you said in our episode on Black Narcissus, which is that you're so used to being at the convent and you're so used to being among them so that when when Rose has the red dress, it's so jarring because you've been in this, this hermetically sealed world. And I found that that Kurosawa, you know, he did not film this on a soundstage. He actually had the whole village built and he said it would be it would make the actors better because he was you know obviously a, a completist in that regard. And I think it's so funny because you are it's so true. After three minutes or four minutes, you're in this world and you're so enveloped in it that it's like that same effect of watching Black Narcissus. I can tell you that when Cayuso dies, when he's suddenly shot, that's a moment that is exactly like seeing the red dress in Black yeah. Narcissus because you're you're exactly right. This this world has convinced you that he really is the sword saint, that, that he's, exists, in, he's yeah. invincible. And to see him shot with a rifle by a coward, uh, it hurts you in a way that if you hadn't, if you have not spent the last three hours essentially being indoctrinated by this movie into its universe, uh, that moment seems very quotidian. You're like, right. If you describe the movie from the outside and then you say what happens, they go like, of course that guy dies. You know, from a narrative arc perspective, he's got to die or what they have some something. That's not what it feels like to watch the movie. No, what it feels like to watch the movie is to really believe that he's invincible. And it's it's a shocking moment. And you go through so many emotions in this movie. Like, for example, you know what? I, you know what? I totally forgot. I probably haven't seen this in, I don't know, five years. You know what? I totally forgot about this. I forgot how funny it is. It's hilarious. There are so many great bits and, you know, not just like waiting by the door frame to, to hit the guy in the head to see if he's a, if he's a true samurai or not, but there's so many great bits with Toshiro Mifune. It's so funny. I forgot how, how funny it is. I forgot how good the music is. And I also forgot how you go through every possible emotion. You go through joy, you have excitement, you have triumph, you have great stomach aches when he's holding the kid in the stream, you know, I know about it that, you know, and he realizes he's looking at himself. I mean, there's so you go through, you know, to, to use a cliche that would make us roll our eyes if we read it, like you really do run the gamut of emotions in, in an afternoon watching this. And it's so, it's so exhilarating. I think a good example of that is when, um, uh, is when the crazy one uh, rings the alarm. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Right. So everybody, so everybody runs out, everybody comes running. Um, you know, they're yelling at the peasants who saw what somebody come forward right now. And he says it was me. And he turns around to the peasants and he said, you, you remember our, uh, how you welcomed us to the village? Yep. Who's laughing now? And, and that's, um, I think that there's a lot of sudden reversals in this movie in fact, the, the more that we talk about it, the more that seems like the structure of the movie. Whenever yeah. you feel the, the point of an emotion, the counterpoint is coming. We'll talk, we'll talk more about that at the end. But this movie does not let you rest in one state for very long. And I think that that's part of what makes it gripping. Yeah. All right. In part two, we'll talk about our favorite moments.
Okay, welcome back. So in part two, of course, we always talk about key scenes. I think mine's first. Well, I'll actually, before we talk about key scenes, I just want to go back to what you said before about Godfather 2, because I think that's so funny, right? Another complicated thing about Godfather 2, why you couldn't say the plot is because you'd have to start by saying, okay, there's these guys, um, uh, the Rosado brothers, and they're not even in the movie, and they've been causing trouble for Frank Pantangela, who complains to Michael, like you couldn't even start doing it without laughing, where the plot of this is so beautifully simple. Whenever you read about Seven Samurai, the number one thing you read is how often it's remade. But I think part of the beauty of why it's influential is because it manages to distill more complicated source material into something that is easy to replicate in terms of its plot, right? So like if you made, right, you could make the Seven Samurai as a kid's movie, which was done as a bug's life. You could remake it as a Western and, and the, it's not necessarily just its influence, which makes it replicable, is its beautiful simplicity. It, it has an elemental nature. Yeah, um, absolutely. So let's talk about our favorite moments. So uh, you want to go first? Yeah. So so my moment is when they bring in the armor to the samurai. They're, they're sitting around because they have all the skills, but they don't have the equipment. And it turns out that some of the farmers between them have suits of armor, swords, bows and arrows. And it's because... Uh, as wounded samurai have come back from battles, uh, farmers have have killed them uh, and taken their armor and hidden them as as treasure, and and they've only just discovered it. So of course, all the other samurai uh, re- reject it, uh, want to smack the the peasants around. Suddenly, they've gone from wanting to protect them to wanting to kill them all. And Kikuchio stands up, and he's the one who's found the armor. He's tried to be useful, and the problem is uh, that he's he's he says, yeah, there's there's nothing as independable as a peasant. There's nothing so disgusting and wily as a peasant, but of course, who made them that way? And it's all of you. And basically it's a a socioeconomic history of Japan circa 17th century, but as delivered by Falstaff. It has, (laughs) as you were talking about, it has the same intensity of language. It has the same intensity of character. And he says, um, you know, I could laugh for days. I could laugh so hard until I cry. And in fact, he does because it turns out that he's part of that socioeconomic history. The reason that he's alone in the world is because he's th- th- this thing with the farmers has happened to him, right? He's saying as you wage wars and you go back and forth uh, and, and one Lord decides to fight another and you just set a random village on fire, there's people that live in that village and you've never thought about it from their perspective. Yeah. And so I think that connects back first structurally to the way that the film works, right? Because um, at first you feel hope when you see the armor and then you feel anger when the samurai are angry and then you feel sadness when Kikuchi takes them to task and then you feel solemnity when he leaves and they just des- decide okay they're going to take the armor anyway um you, you're in what you're in the dominant emotional state of whatever character is there and it, and it does feel very Shakespearean um in in the sense that there's a kind of polyphony I'm not sure that Akira Kurosawa has a point of view. He's like Tolstoy in the sense that he allows characters to prevent points of view and they form a synoptic picture of what's going on kind of through them, uh, through those characters, but without ever insisting on a point of view. And I think that's what makes all of their discussions so beautiful, but particularly that moment leaps out at me as the best example of not allowing you to rest in a single emotion and giving an enormous depth of feeling from a character who seems on the on the surface of it very simple. Yeah, and that's a great point about Shakespeare because of course, you know, we've seen Ron, you've seen Throne of Blood, um, but you know, it's very Shakespearean in that um, 
every character that you're with for for more than a few minutes has a point of view that you can start to understand. And like, you know, when you watch Henry the Fourth Part One, speaking of Falstaff, right? You have Hotspur, you have the Prince, you have Falstaff, you have all these people with different points of view, and each of them has a legitimate claim on your attention and on your respect. They seduce you into feeling the same way that that they feel, or the, the reality of the characters has kind of a gravitational pull. And so you as viewer be, are pulled in whatever direction, whoever's in front of the camera. Yeah. But since the but since the camera shifts their perspective, you shift inside. And and even though like we we talked about, you don't go anywhere, you don't leap anywhere, you don't transition anywhere. All the transition is internal. Yeah, because when you watch this, of course, if you were, you could say, well, which one of the seven would you want to be? So they each have different personalities. You'd be like, well, he's pretty cool. He's pretty cool. Actually, he's a good guy. Like, they, you know, they, they each have the, it's, it's, you know, Roger Ebert says that this is the first movie. He thinks this is the first movie where a team is assembled to do a job. And, you know, we could lead away from this to, all the way up to, you know, Ocean's Eleven. Um, but each of them has their own qualities. Each of them is likable. And I, I want to build on something you said about Falstaff, because my moment is when, Hiachi dies. He's the guy who's the wood chopper. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, I'm so, I'm so tough that um, I run away from other men so that, so that I don't kill them. Um, Shimada says, he'll be fun to have around. Like he'll be, he'll be a good guy to have around. He'll make us happy. He'll lift our spirits. So remember he, he dies first. He's the first one to die. And we get the funeral. That's after they go to raid the camp because they have the three horses. And then um, they're at the, they're at the burial mound. And Shimada says, he said he'd be a treasure in hard times, but the hard times have only begun. And you remember that one farmer, um, Rikishi, throws himself on the mound. He starts screaming and crying. And then Toshiro Mufuni like, says, stop crying. And he runs. And by the way, there's so much running in this movie at full speed, which is beautiful. He runs. And remember what he grabs? He grabs the flag. He grabs the flag that was painted. And he comes up and he sticks it in the corner. And then he sits down. And then at that moment, you get that great shot of the hill and all the bandits start coming over the hill and he stands up and starts pointing and says, here they come, God damn it, here they come. And he starts laughing and cheering. And I think that moment is great is because in the first, say, hour and a half of the film, he is like Falstaff. He's kind of funny. We really like him. Every time he comes back on the screen, we're like, oh, good. He's clownish. He's the giant. His sword is as long as, as you know, an 18 wheeler. Um, and they kind of like put up with him, too. Um, they eventually like take him on just as a joke. But eventually he grows into that role. He wants to be taken seriously. So he buys. Remember, he buys the fake um, the fake ancestor thing. And they say, you're not 13 years old. And he kind of grows into this dignity. And he turns out that he really has it when it counts. And of course, he's the one that kills the bandit chief at the end, at the expense of his own life. So I think it's great that that in that moment where he plants the flag, that's where he's not just a buffoon anymore. That's not where he's not just false death, but he's, he's become more like Hotspur, if you will. He's become more, you know, um, more of a reminder that there's something more important than just whatever, whoever your ancestors were. And there's, inc- there's incredible battle scenes. In the oh, yeah, they're great. They're, that when, when all the peasants have their spears and they're trying to hold off the entry into the yeah. village, the camera is so narrow, right? It, it reminds me of like Thermopylae, right? With, with the narrow, yeah. with the narrow alley. But if you watch the 300, there is no shot like that in the entirety of the 300. You have to go 50 years beforehand when they knew how to handle that shot, yeah. right? And then you find out that that's when they fire off the first round from the musket to remind you that the bandit king has the, right? You know, he's got the rifle, which uh, of course will become important in like another half an hour. It's um. They get so much done in such a short amount of time. The compression does not signify that you're going to watch a three and a half hour film. No, the compression signifies that you're going to watch a 90 minute film, but it's going to feel like a three and a half hour film. This is the opposite. 
And just to end this segment, what's funny is that when you read about this film, when it was released in America, I mean, it was the most expensive and longest movie ever made in Japan up to that point. When it was released in America, they cut 50 minutes from it. And I knew that watching it again for this episode, and I thought to myself, like, well, what would you cut? I mean, I guess you can cut the romance with Shino, but then you lose you lose that counterpoint, right? The whole tension between the samurai and the villagers. And then um, the, the last scene won't make any sense. Yeah, the last, sorry, then he's looking, unless they cut that too, who knows? But it's amazing how you couldn't cut. I mean, we think about how many extras you've watched on DVDs over the years of, of the director's version or like deleted scenes. So all the movies we love, right? You watch his deleted scenes, I don't think I've ever seen one deleted scene where I said, I can't believe that was cut from the movie. Like, have you? No, and speaking of the 300, then Zach What's-His-Face needs a four-hour Justice League. Yeah, yeah right. You should watch a Seven Samurai. Yeah, the this Justice League has to be longer than the Seven Samurai and Godfather 2. All right, actually, well, it is the, actually, it is I, the Seven Samurai. All right. right? It's ba- <laughs> yeah, it actually is. It's, it's Batman, Superman, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But wow. worse. But yeah. And longer. All right, let's go to part three. So welcome back. In part three, we talk about the ending or the title. Title's pretty obvious. Mike, what's your take on the ending? The last shot, the last conversation, because you've spent so much time entrenched in the film, I think is unbelievably poignant. And I, I think one of I think one of the actions of the film, like we've we've talked so far about never letting you rest on one emotion things passing away. I think kind of the the macro movement of this film is to make you invested in the time of samurai. But of course, it's not the time of samurai anymore. It's it's the time of the rifle. And there's there's something there's something really poignant about this, this being a 20th century swan song for the for the age of the samurai. Right. And and you can't say that it's Right, right, and you can't say it's an elegy for a better Japan because the film, of course, is is not sentimental uh, in paying tribute to to the way that's right. Samurai are not are not Jedi, although they right they they influence Jedi. Sure. Right, that the, these are actually about socioeconomic problems between a Japanese feudalism and then w- what's going to happen later, and that's why the that's why ultimately the victory belongs to the peasants. Because the the victory belongs to the people, because the there's something about the people that endure, uh, but there's something about the beliefs and values that that last only for a time, right? That's why um, that's why Cayuso had to die, right? I, we, we said that there's something elemental about this film. There's something archetypal about this film. One of the subplots of this film o- almost reads like a fairy tale. Like once upon a time, there's an invis- invincible swordsman, right? And around him there were bandits with three rifles, right? And they stole back two of the rifles. But it wasn't enough because if even just one slips through, it ends his life, right? He he comes to embody all of the things that you want to see in this movie. That there's a real we talked about a movie where you don't see a duel. This is a movie where you do see a yeah. duel. And it's the most intense two minutes that you'll right. There's no there's no action movie with a scene like this. There's no lightsaber duel, like watching the two of them stare at each other and the guy keeps screaming to intimidate him and he won't move back or step back. He's just waiting to kill him. And if he, there's of course the sense that if he walked away, he wouldn't pursue, he would let him walk away. Right. Right. So you, you choose and you run at him. And that's exactly what Cayuso does is he runs at fate and, and a whole age has passed when he, when he ultimately dies. It's, it's, it's very difficult to summarize not in its plot element, but in, in the feelings that it evokes. Yeah. Because every one of them has a different reason for going to, to going to joining this, 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 band of and helping out the farmers. Do you remember what his reason was? 
to practice his skill <laughs> because he's so skilled. And remember, he's the one that goes out to practice in the rain. And that's how he sees the young lovers getting together. So he was, he, that, that's exactly what he lived for. And he actually meant it. So people, you know, we talked about when we did the red shoes, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to become this dancer and you're going to practice your skill and become unbelievably great at this thing, there's a cost. And like you said there, like his cost is to not back up. And his cost is that, you know, you, you might get taken down by a weapon you never dreamed of encountering, but that's of course, what's sad about it. It you can you can become so great that you can conquer your time, but nobody is so invincible that they can conquer what's coming next. Yeah, they can't and, conquer time. Right. For 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 the conditions that existed when he formulated his personality, he achieved perfection, but perfection is a moving target. And yeah. that's 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 why the film gives you the sense that time just rolls on, right? It's not just Kaiuzo who dies, it's J- Japan in a sense. Shimada says, you know, in the end, we lost this battle too. And then, you know, he says, what? And he says, the victory belongs to these peasants. But I love when he says, and then we lost this battle too. Like we've lost more than one, right? We've lost this battle too. And, and I, I thought the same thing when he says that, like, well, what did they lose it to? And they lost it to time moving on. So when the, when the women are singing the rice planting song and Sheena goes back there, right? The Disney version would be that she ends up with the young guy and, and they, you know, they've come happily ever after, but they, they, you, they lost the battle too of trying to even bridge that gulf. Cause the, one of the subplots of course is Sheena's got to get her hair cut and they're afraid and you can't, the, the, the samurai and the farmers are not going to mix. They can't do it. And it's, it's foolish to think they can, even after a big rousing three hour, you know, a, a big battle thing. At the end, we lost this battle too. Like we're not even, we're not, we're strong enough for the bandits, but we're not strong enough for the farmers. Because the, and the farmers are time, the yeah. farmers are the land right? and they're, they're not going anywhere. So it, before you've seen this movie, if you understand what it's about or what you're about to sit down for, you're thinking about the elemental force as struggle, but the elemental force is in some sense, peace. The tiny little blips that are human conflict mean nothing because there's this sub rhythm of life that just keeps rolling on. And that's, that's what you feel. Yeah. And that's I why love- they're, they're literally in the river, right? In the right yeah. paddy. And it's just, it's just time is flowing around them. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's remarkably shot. And things are growing again and they're, they're, they're happy. And there's, cause remember the beating beginning, the drums. Yeah. Singing. The beginning, they're all crouched down and there's those long shots. They're almost like, like, um, like the, the, in Kubrick, they're just sitting there really still in misery. And then at the end, they're joyful again. When, when joy, right. Um, what does Richard the third say? That hit like right that he's that he's built his entire personality on conflict, and so now that peace has returned, he can't enjoy any of it. And then you see the four burial mounds, and they look at them, and and the viewer sees the back of their heads as they're looking at the four mounds, and it's great to think like what's going through their heads. Like okay, so we've saved this village, this no name village where the magistrate's never going to come, and that's it, and and that's who did it, and we know what those four mounds mean. The three remaining guys know. Will the villagers ever go back up there? Will the farmers ever go back up there? No, like time is going by, nor, nor should they. It doesn't mean they're, they're ungrateful or anything, but, but we know so much goes into those four mounds because we've gone through it. Like we've been there with them. It, well, it reminds me of the, of the end of Beowulf. It reminds there there's a lot of um, like cultural martial victory, which is, which is only for a time. It, and it's, yeah. so it's not like distinctly Japanese. It's just human. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoyed our conversation about Seven Samurai. Again, thank you to Travis G for giving us the request. Remember to follow us on Twitter at 15MINFilm and also follow us on 
Letterboxd. Letterboxd, which we love, we love, we love Letterboxd. So follow us on Letterboxd at 15MIN Film, and you can give us requests there. We post our shows to Letterboxd as well when they come out. Keep the requests coming. It's been a great season so far. Thanks for listening. You have to watch this movie.